Radhika Jones, editor-in-chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. This episode is brought to you by The Sinner. From executive producer Jessica Biel, The Sinner is a limited series event that begins with an unsettling and heart-wrenching crime, parents murdered by their young son. But the sins of a child are never his alone, and beneath the surface of a seemingly normal small town lie very dark secrets. You will know who, you will know how, but you won't believe why. Bill Pullman, Carrie Coon, and Tracy Litt's star, The Sinner airs Wednesdays at 10 and 9 central on USA Network. Hello, still watching listeners. This is Joanna Robinson with a quick little note for you. The very beginning of this episode, we have a slight little technological issue with the sound, uh, but it smooths out really quickly and the rest of the episode does not have that problem. So do not despair. Stick through the first 30 seconds or minute or so, and then you will be rewarded with much smoother audio. Thanks so much and enjoy. Welcome to Still Watching the Fall TV Preview Edition. I'm Vanity Fair Senior Writer Joanna Robinson. And I'm Vanity Fair Chief Critic Richard Lawson. For the next few weeks of this podcast, we're, Richard and I are going to be taking a look at a few shows that we are excited about that are new and premiering, and a few shows that we are still watching from previous seasons. Just basically some some series that we wanted to highlight sort of week by week. Um we might also, as is our want, include some interviews with people who are working on these shows. But as for this week, we wanted to dive into one of Richard's favorites from last year, which is the Netflix series Ozark. Mm-hmm. Um, it just dropped its second season on on the platform last week. Uh, so you can, it's about 20 episodes, 10 episodes per season. Uh, you can screen, stream the whole thing. We're not going to get too spoilery about this, Richard, right? We just sort of want to talk about why we think this is a show worth your time in the like, super crowded TV landscape, why should people watch Ozark? So I just want to start by asking Richard, like, what other shows would you compare Ozark to? I mean, I think the obvious comparison is Breaking Bad, just because it's about like a seemingly normal, you know, well, guy and also his family or his wife, at least, um, who like finds himself in a criminal enterprise and it gets deeper and deeper into it. Um, so that's probably the closest comparison, but like, it's also like one of those shows that in this sort of prestige television era where like, they're like, Oh, we haven't, there's not a show set in this world. So it's very much like a show about a place. Um, I sometimes wish it was more about the place, but, um, but yeah, I I think it's solidly entertaining as a thriller, uh, has some great acting, some really interesting filmmaking, um, you know, uh, 
often at the hands of Jason Bateman, who is the star and also directs a lot of the episodes. So, I mean, it has, it has a lot. It's it's probably my like dad is show that I like. Yeah. <laughs> it's very, it's very dad show. Um, I call the ja- dad genre is like the epitome of the dad genre for me is Ray Donovan. That is like the epitome oh, yeah. of a dad show for me. Um, so I, uh, I hadn't watched this show before we decided to talk about it. So I've, I have since seen all of season one and some of season two. And I guess, yeah, I should, uh, lay out the premise really quickly, which is Jason Bateman plays Marty Bird, a, um, I don't know, investment, uh, guy genius who gets involved with the mob and washing their money. The lovely Laura Linney plays his wife, Wendy Bird. Uh, He's got two kids, Charlotte and Jonah. And, uh, you know, as the series kicks off in season one, they relocate from Chicago to the Ozarks, which uh, are are called the Redneck Riviera, I guess, in in Missouri. And so the show takes place, as you say, Richard, like the place, the location is so distinct and it's like right on the water in the Ozarks. So it's this sort of resort town where there is a lot of money, but it's very much intermingling with a lot of like, uh, I mean, the self-described rednecks. So um, that is the, the interesting locale. There are a few actors uh, that we should, you know, sort of note. I mean, we, we talked about this when we did Westworld. I had asked you sort of what your experience with the actor Peter Mullen was. And you were like, Oh, he's on Ozarks. Pretty great there. Uh, and now I see what you mean. He plays like mm-hmm. one of the, the show's many big bads, but basically like I completely agree with you about breaking bad. Um, because this is a show where, Marty and his wife and the various other operatives, like just, just when you think they're going to escape whatever noose is around their neck, another noose tightens and they're drawn into something else. And basically like Marty has an ever shifting goal line of an, of an amount of dollars he has to wash, like make clean for the mob. And it's constantly moving or he's constantly losing some of the money and gaining it back and sort of like an, an, I don't know. I keep, for some reason, I kept thinking of Into the Woods where they're like, oh, they almost have all the things they need. Oh, they lost the things and now they need more things. So, um, yeah, the series has a real sort of like, I mean, I guess all shows do or most shows do, but like the way that the Ozark, like the causality in it, you know, like Mm -hmm. one thing leading to this thing and and the kind of like, well, further deepening into this criminal enterprise, but also like, um, they're sort of purview, especially in the second season, getting bigger, um, you know, because you have the, these, you know, Mexican car- drug cartels that they're washing money for, but there's also the local gangsters, you know, played by Peter Mullen and his associates. And, and so, and, 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 and naturally in the second season, other elements have to be introduced. So um, I think that in the second season, it stays the kind of like taught interesting little series it is in the first season, but it's, it feels bigger. It, when, when I was thinking of what shows I would compare it to it, it all like, led me back to a different era of me watching television, which is when I was watching Breaking Bad and Dexter and Justified and Sons of Anarchy and all of these like male, you know, classic male antihero, golden age of antihero and crime, but like highbrow crime sort of stories. I wanted to talk to you about the way in which the Jason Bateman casting is, I don't know, I think one of the, the, the greatest geniuses of the show is the use of Jason Bateman, who is an actor who has just like oodles of charisma, but has always, almost always like from the beginning of his career, sort of struck me as slightly miscast because I think he's often cast as not always, but often cast as like the good guy. And here he's the good guy. You're rooting for him, but he's also a kind of a pretty bad guy too. And so that to me, 
works with uh, this like mm, unmistakable sort of like smarm factor that Jason Bateman has. And I mean that as like a compliment. I really, really love what he does uh, in this series. So I was just wondering like, yeah. what, what you think of, of the Marty bird as like a classic male antihero and Jason Bateman in that, in that role. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think he's well cast um, because like, uh, you know, there are a lot of scenes where Marty has to kind of quickly kind of summon summon his courage and convince a really bad guy, like, not to kill him or his family because, uh, you know, here's X, Y, Z. Here, here's how I can do it for you. You know, because he's, like, he's an accountant. Like, he has, like, solutions to things. And um, I think that B- Bateman's energy works really well for that. Um, there's a kind of, like, wily kind of, you know, scrappy quality to him. Yeah. Um, that, like, the show necessitates. And is he's offset by Laura Linney as, as Wendy Bird, um, who it's, you know, it's a great role for her. It's, she's, you know, movie work for her has, I feel like not been great lately. And so it's fun to get to see her do her thing. And especially in the second season, I mean, Bateman's still, you know, front and center, I would say, but like she get Linney gets a lot to do too, which is exciting. Yeah. The, the second season moves further into the world of politics or I guess at all into the world of politics. And, um, the Wendy Bird character and Wendy Bird is such a fun name as is Marty Bird, by the way, but like Wendy Bird with all its like Peter Pan associations, but like Wendy Bird's history in politics comes to the fore and it's like, they already knew what to do with her in season one. It never felt like they didn't know what to do with Laura Lenny, but now it's just, she just has even more agency. And the, the thing I love about her character, as opposed to like all those other male antihero shows that I listed is like usually the formula in those male antihero shows like Breaking Bad or Dexter or Justified even is that you needed um the female character to sort of either be one you're keeping a secret from or a nag or a wet blanket. And as a result, like, you know, famously with Breaking Bad, the bad fandoms sort of wound up hating those characters, wound up hating the character of Skylar White in Breaking Bad because she was ruining all the fun for Walter White. And that's obviously something that, like, I never got behind that fandom for doing that. But I also really disliked the various show writers for putting all their female characters in that position. Yeah. And interestingly, I think yeah. in season two of Ozark, I don't, without spoiling anything, like, Wendy sort of seems to kind of be taking to this new life more than Marty is, even though he's the one who kind of basically got them into it. Um, so there's kind of an interesting flip, I guess, that's similar to maybe something on The Americans, a show I haven't watched, I know I should, but, like, my understanding is that Carrie Russell's character is kind of the more committed to the cause one. Yeah. Um, you know, so I think that's kind of an interesting thing. You know what, actually, I just thought about Um Another kind of similar show, I mean, not in tone at all, but in, in plot, is is Schitt's Creek. Yeah. <laughs> people go to a small town. They don't want to be there. And, and Schitt's Creek, which is very much about, like, building business, small business. It's always Ozark. So, yeah, if you if you like Schitt's Creek, which but everyone you, should be watching, by the way. But you want more murder. This episode is brought to you by The Sinner. From executive producer Jessica Beale, The Sinner is a limited series event that begins with an unsettling and heart-wrenching crime – parents murdered by their young son. But the sins of a child are never his alone, and beneath the surface of a seemingly normal small town line very dark secrets. You will know who, you will know how, but you won't believe why. Bill Pullman, Carrie Coon, and Tracy Litt star The Sinner airs Wednesdays at 10 and 9 Central on USA Network. There was something, let me just say this about Ozark is like, I I guess it always kept me guessing in terms of like where it was going to go in terms of violence and stakes. 
to the point that like something happens in the season one finale and I won't say what it, what it is, but something happened that I couldn't, I could not tell if a truly like really boundary breaking, terrible thing was going to happen on the show or not. And that's the kind of show that it is. I was like, this show could go there. I could see, I could see the show committing to that. So it's just like, it's one of those things where like, you know, sometimes you're watching a show and you're like, oh, that's character safe. I'm not worried about them. And that's yeah. not how I feel ever when I'm watching Ozark. You know, I'm just like, I, you know, I could see them killing literally anyone at any time if they want, if they so chose. So. Yeah, no, I agree. And, you know, um, and it's, I don't think it's any sign of my lack of investment, but you know, that like, yes, they could kill, kill anyone, but it's not like a stressful show to watch really. You know, there are moments of like tension, but like, you know, certain certain series like I, I just find kind of like toward the end, I found Sopranos kind of agonizing because I was like, who is, you know, like, who's going to die? Like, I've been with these people for so long. I feel like Ozark is a little bit more casual, a little lighter than that, um, which I appreciate. Yeah. And it's also not like as tonally grim as like Bloodline, which I found to be a slog to watch, even though I like so many people on that show. I just couldn't get there with Bloodline. Um, and, and this seems like a lighter version of that, perhaps because Jason Bateman's background is in comedy. So there are often these reactions he has to atrocious situations that are almost like a comedy. You know, he'll, he's playing it really low key, but almost like a comedy take. And, and that's probably why Breaking Bad worked as well as it did because Brian Cranston's background was in comedy. You know what I mean? And so it's just like, you've got a main hero who's not just like clenching their jaw, but they're like giving double takes sometimes or, you know, whatever it is that, that really, uh, um, serves the mood and the other the other person i would attribute a lot of that uh tone to is julia garner who plays this sort of um young teen delinquent who um jason bateman's character kind of takes takes under his wing uh begrudgingly at first and then sort of more willingly and julia garner speaking of the americans like she was fabulous in the americans she's really good in the upcoming uh maniac which will also be on netflix and she's just like one of those people who you can always recognize them because she's got this really distinctive curly mop of hair, but like, she's really very talented, um, in everything she's done. I know she's done a few films as well. And, um, she's, I think she's a real standout on the show. Yeah. I, I, her character's involvement in the world of the birds, um, strains a little credibility as the second season goes on, which kind of like harms, I think my appreciation appreciation of the character mm-hmm. but like she's good in it and, and her arc in the first season is really interesting um it's an unlikely partnership between you know uh it's an unlikely partnership between her character ruthie and 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 marty bird um that and it's a male female thing that does not have a sexual component to it which i appreciate um also if we're going to appreciate things uh credit to the show for casting linny who is not only not 20 years younger than jason bateman she's two years older than him or nice. at least a, or maybe even more um, so I, th- I think that that's, that's cool. They, they just got the best person for the job, no matter what, you know, and, um, uh, and in season two, beyond Peter Mullen also joining the cast as kind of an antagonizer is the great Janet McTeer, uh, who is, you know, an Oscar nominee for some tumbleweeds and Albert knobs and has popped up, um, in, in some television of late. Uh, and she's great. And, and have you got, you've gotten to her episode. Yeah, right? yeah. 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 She's amazing. Once again, this, it just kicked me back to those like old FX shows, like, like justified or, or terriers or something like that, where like, where like a new big bad shows up at the beginning of every season. And it's usually an actor you recognize, but not like a star, but like a, like a journeyman actor that you're really excited to see them like just dig into this role. And so when she showed up at the beginning of season two, I was like, ah, yes, here we go. Here it is. Um, but yeah, but the other, the other thing that a lot of these shows, these like, uh, 
family men plunged into crime or whatever it might be, uh, bump up a guest is, um, obnoxious child actors. Mm-hmm. This, has been, yeah. this has been a problem on some shows. I don't think it's a problem here, but I was just thinking of like some, you know, like the Americans did a pretty good job at like famously Homeland bumped up against this problem. These kids really work for me. And, um, uh, you know, and then they've got a few like counterparts uh, in the town. And here's, here's the thing that made me feel like, um, I don't know. I, I, I was, older than I wanted to be, which is that, uh, Charlie Tan, Tahan, I think, mm-hmm. who plays Wyatt Langmore, who's, who's got this like great, uh, half up redneck hairstyle, uh, was in the movie Charlie St. Cloud playing Zach Efron's like little ghost brother. And I was like, Oh my God, it's the little kid from Charlie St. Cloud. <laughs> <laughs> I recognize him from love is strange. The wonderful uh, film with John Lithgow and Alfred Molina, but Hey, oh, we all, yes. have, we all have our points of reference. <laughs> sure. Sure. Mine, I think is equally uh, as highbrow as that. Uh, but yeah, I was, I was just like, Oh my goodness. Um, anyway. Yeah. I mean like, I don't, what do you think of the kids on the show? I'm, I'm, um, I like, I think Skylar, Gertner, who plays Jonah, the boy. I think he's good. And I think his character remains interesting. It, no knock to Sophia Hublitz, who plays Charlotte, the daughter. Season two, she does some like angsty teen stuff that's like, wait, but your family is in mortal ta- danger. Like, 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 save your kind of, you know, your, I feel like it's maybe like um, largely male staff not quite knowing how to write a teenage girl. Um, although they're doing a good job with Ruthie. So I don't know. But, um, but no, I think by and large, the kids are good actors. Um, and that includes Charlie Tahan and there's a couple other guys who play like his brothers or cousins or something. Um, yeah, it's a really well cast show. We should also mention, um, Jordana Spiro, yes. um, from my boys on TBS. I don't know if anyone watched that. I certainly did. Um, and, and, and she's been in a lot of other things as well. Um, she has an interesting role in the first season and, um, I don't think it's a spoiler to say in the second season. Um, and she's really great and it's, it's interesting to see her in this kind of darker mode for those who I, at least for me, I mostly knew her from comedy. No, I was, it, that, that was one of those moments where I was watching her and I was like, whatever I know her from, it's light and she was blonde. I know that. <laughs> I was like, it was like a fun light tone thing and it was, and she was blonde. And I looked up, I was like, oh my God, it's my boys. Uh, so yeah, yeah, she's got like, you know, sort of shorter brunette, messy hair and she's doing a great job. She's great in this role. The show is, is, is intelligently cast. You know, I think that like, um, could it use more diversity? Sure. But, you know, et cetera, there are, there are problems as there are with most shows, but like, um, I, I like that, um, everyone picked feels, and maybe this is a privilege of being on Netflix and you can just do this, but like everyone picked feels like they're there because they were the best thing for the role. It's not because they have a name or they're, you know, a Q score or whatever, you know, like it, none of the casting feels like stunty at all. Yeah, I think especially the people that they uh, cast you play, like the the lifelong residents of uh, you know the Ozarks, mm-hmm. are these people, these actors with just these like really lived in faces. You know what I mean? That it's just sort of like I I, I almost like there there's a character in season one um, who plays like Ruthie's uncle. Uh, who's got this like big ginger beard. And I was almost like, I was trying, I was like, this guy has like such a great face. And I'm like, what else would I ever even put him in than this? You know, right. like, and that, that is, I, I completely agree. It's like, you've got, obviously it's a little showy to have, have Jason Bateman in the lead. Like this is a, a known and beloved TV and film actor. Um, Laura Linney like gives the whole thing a lot of prestige. 
absolutely. But other than that, all the casting I agree with you feels just very like, um, who is a character actor? Who, who fits this world? Who really works here? And I, I think to have someone even flashier show up, um, you know, there's, there's a, a sort of, um, I don't know, political mover and shaker that shows up in season two, who's also like maybe a big bad figure. I haven't, I haven't gotten far enough into season two to know, but he's played by an actor that I've seen in a few things, but like I is not, uh, you know, he could very easily have been a name and he's not. And, and, and that's the kind of thing where you're just sort of like, okay, they've got Janet McTeer. Yeah. She's an Oscar nominee, but like, other than that, it's, it's people that you can then just like disappear into the world. And that's what, you know, when, before Margot Martindale became like the character actors of, of our, our time, or at least tied for the character actors of our time, when she showed up on Justified season two playing Mags Bennett, like I didn't know who she was. And I just was like enthralled by that character and that world. And then that's, I, I know I keep comparing it to Justified, but that, that idea of, um, we talked about this in Sharp Objects, whether or not Missouri is the South, but that idea of like a Southern-ish set crime show where you've got extreme wealth and extreme poverty and those two levels of crime sort of operating together where you've got like, um, and justified, you've got the like really low level oxy, you know, dealers and then you've got like the high, high end political movers and they're both equally villainous and sort of to see the way these things operate. The same, the same thing is happening over on the great uh, underwatch TNT show clause, you know, where you just have these like two things coexisting. Um, that, that, that really is an interesting commentary on like, you know, what people with money can get away with that people without yeah. cannot. Yeah. So. Yeah. And all the sort of systems that are interlinked, you know, I think that a, a one of the kind of like, darker parts of this show is you see like, like I think I described it in my review of season two, that they're sort of this, like they're, they're an infection. Like they're like, like when the birds arrive in this town, they like, they, everything they do like ruins people's lives, you know? And, 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 and I think that that's, you know, people who are wealthy are, are harmed and people who are poor are especially harmed. And, and um, just seeing how, like what the ripple effects of something can be, and it's interesting because, you know, the initial ripple effect is that they're trying to stay alive, you know? So you're like rooting for them to like make it, but then you're like, Oh wait, but in their making it, they're causing harm to so many people. And how do you justify that? And how do you kind of, you know, and I think that breaking bad, obviously nod at those questions um, in a way that I appreciated, but I think maybe got a little too, too grim for me or something, you know? Um, and, and I think here again, the tone is a little bit, less it's not quite as heavy which um i like but while still also being thorough in its like look at what effect all of this is having in the community i i mean i loved breaking bad from start to finish but breaking bad did eventually become um like a stylized version of its first season if that makes sense you know what i mean like the 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 iconography of breaking bad in the end almost overshadowed the actual human drama and I yeah. think that Ozark, it's only in its second season, but Ozark is, is not a show that seems like it's going to go that way, even though it does have some like visual stylistic flair. And I want to talk to you about that. Like, so, uh, Jason Bateman is nominated for an Emmy for directing, um, you know, some episodes as well as, uh, in the lead actor category. And, um, I was wondering what you thought of the visual style of this show. I know a lot of criticisms have been that it is too, like, 
actually dark, like hard to see dark. <laughs> yeah. Um, it definitely has that like blue gray wash to the whole thing. But like, what do you, what do you think of how the show looks? I think it looks great. I mean, I think that like, um, especially in season two, I think just, you know, because you're feeling a little more confident about, you know, you have a hit. I mean, we don't know Netflix's numbers, but I'm sort of told anecdotally that like Ozark is one of their bigger shows. Um, yeah, you can start to do some interesting things. And I don't know if it's an episode he directed, but there's a really long shot of a motorboat going across the lake and it's Laura Linney on it with somebody else and they're talking and it's very, very far away. And it's just this slow zoom in and until, until they're actually like, it, you see that it is them on the boat. Like it's a really kind of impressive thing. Um, they do some cold open stuff uh, this season that um, there's one in particular that goes backward in time that feels a little bit like, eh, I don't know that we needed that, you know? Um, but on the whole, I think it's a very slickly designed show. Um, I guess my question is, does this series think that it's like high art prestige television or just really well-filmed kind of pulp? I think it's the latter and that's fine. That's a perfectly fine thing to be. I just wonder sometimes how highbrow they think they are. Yeah. There was another really good shot at the, I think it was the end of the season two premiere where, um, you know, Laura Linney and Jason Bateman's characters are, you know, in their finery coming back from this, you know, charity event that they've been to. And they took advantage of the house that they live in in a way that they hadn't in season one, I think, because there's this long hallway that's all windows on one side. And they just did a, a shot of them from far away, like walking down that hallway, checking in on their kids. Well, like sort of a a piece of music that you wouldn't expect to play over sort of some of the grimmer things that happen in this series play. And it's that kind of little stylic twist, or there is this, I don't know how long it's been since you watched season one. Uh, for me, it was like yesterday, but, uh, there's this episode in season one. I want to say it's episode eight where it takes place. I don't know, 10 years, a decade ago, basically. Mm-hmm. And, uh, or less than that. Uh, 2007 is what it was. And what's so fascinating about that episode is it's like, it's not completely uncommon for a, a, especially a very complicated and tangled crime show to take one step back and be like, well, how did we all get here? Sort of thing. Like right. that's not uncommon, but that episode itself is told completely out of order in a really fascinating way that I think challenges, like just challenges as viewers. It's not going to hold your hand through this. And it's like, it's telling us an episode set entirely in the past following, I think like three different storylines basically. And they're not told in order. And that's just fascinating. Like, it feels like they put all the scenes in a bag and shook them up and just put them wherever they wanted to. And that's just like a very ambitious swing for a show that, as you say, like, I think is, is very glossy pulp, you know? So, yeah. No, they're trying stuff and I, and I appreciate that. And, and, um, I think that hopefully, you know, if, if anyone listening to this is like now, like, oh, maybe I'm going to watch it. Like, hopefully there's enough going on in the show, um, to, to kind of let it stand out in, like you said, a very crowded field. Um, but it's not so over the top and busy that like, it's just kind of like exhausting, you know? Um, like it's not the young Pope. Don't worry. <laughs> like, in terms yeah, of style. No, not at uh, all. Yeah. You know? Um, and Oh, and something I wanted to mention, I forgot we were, we were talking about cast. There were two other people on the show um, who probably bear mentioning. One is Jason Butler Harner, who plays uh, an FBI agent who is kind of on the birds, uh, trail sort of um, names Roy Petty, which is a good name. Um, and there's, they do some interesting things with that character and he, that character does some interesting things with that guy with the red beard you mentioned. I know. Yeah. That's a, it's a, I, I mean, 
I, I don't like to always pull the ask a gay, a gay card with you, but like, <laughs> how do you feel about the, the way that, that gay love story, storyline, whatever you want to call it in the first season is handled? Um, I think it's so interesting because I, A, did not see it coming at all. I'm, I mean, I'm very much conditioned to not expect gay stuff in a show, like, in like a dad show like this, you know? Right. Um, so, though, you know, to Ray Donovan's credit and Billions' credit, they're, they're actually are better at that stuff than I give than, than I think they're going to be. Um, but um, yeah, so I was surprised by it. That, that was the initial thing. Uh, and then it gets more complicated because the character, Roy Petty, like he's probably the biggest antagonist in, in, in the first season, at least. Um, and, and I think in the second two and like, you know, and, and, and he's weird and he's maybe kind of a psycho and like, um, so you don't really like him and yet you're sort of into this relationship because it's something different and like, the other guy's good. I don't know. So it's, it's a, it's a really complicated, tricky thing. I guess you could maybe make the criticism of like, Oh, why does the villain, you know, the gay guy have to be a villain or whatever, you know, but like, eh, I think that like, it's interesting. It's a, and, and it, it doesn't feel like a character decision that's there just to like fulfill a, a certain slot or whatever. It feels are actually organic to the way that the character's drawn. It's funny because like, he's the villain, but he's the, like, he's the fed, you know, he's, like he's, he's, he's the law. Yeah. He's the law. Um, he has, I, I want to call it just a really interesting face. Yeah. And it's a face that I think you would usually cast him as, yeah, like a, I don't know, like one of the serial killers in Mindhunter. That's the kind of face I think he has. And so to put him in the Fed role, uh, is, is really interesting. Um, and he uses that face quite well. I think, I think it is a really interesting, like, uh, incongruous bit of casting and then the fact that the that storyline is complicated i guess or deepened um by his gay relationship with like one of the guys who lives in the in those arcs is i don't know i, I agree with you i didn't see it coming i guess that th- that's the only spoiler i guess we're going to drop on this episode is that there's oh, there's yeah. a gay storyline in season one but that's i don't know it's not a major a major twist i think but uh yeah i i don't know i thought it was like you say, it was, it was different, but like maybe we are just like thinking in, in, in antiquated, outdated ways about the way in which these dad shows treat, um, yeah. sexuality. So. Yeah. Oh, and it should be said that Jason Bellerharner was on some episodes of Ray Donovan. <laughs> so, sure was. So there you go. Um, and the other person I wanted to mention, and I think you liked her too, cause she's in your show notes, um, is Lisa Emery, uh, who plays Peter Mullen's character's wife. Um, and she's, but she's not reduced to just like a wife role. She's actually kind of shown, especially into the second season as the one who's actually in charge. Um, and it's just a great performance from an actress who I don't really know, you know, um, I think she's a mostly a theater actress. Um, but I think she's such a fun addition to a world in which there are actually like a lot of women with agency. I would call her like a Lori Metcalf type if I sure. had to like mm-hmm. sort of type her but like i like the way that her character darlene um is sort of this little mirror with laura linney's character and the way in which these like that couple the snells uh who are like you know uh, opium growers and dealers um are a reflection of you know the birds who we are supposed to be rooting for who are criminals but not quite criminals yet but maybe maybe this is their future sort of thing and and i really do i i like i like uh lisa emery's performance a lot uh, in that and it's it's funny because like i want to loop it back to laura lenny and say i i think this show doesn't work 
without Laura Linney in it, uh, mm-hmm. even though there are so many great parts around her. Um, and I, I'm just fascinated by what she's doing, especially as you say in season two, as she kind of gets like a taste for what she's doing, because it makes me think of like, her performance in uh, Mystic River, where she plays this like Lady Macbeth figure, which is just not at all, I think, what you think of for Laura Linney. Right? Yeah. Um, and that that's her sort of leading hard into that role, and she's great in that film. Um, obviously, well, she's... her Boston accent could use some work, but yes, <laughs> the, the, the emotion <laughs> shines through. Um, uh, everyone's everyone's Boston accent, and that is that my daughter in there? <laughs> but um. But this is her doing that geared back a lot. And yeah. I appreciate it even more. Um, and she does it. Yeah. Here. She, she rolls out. Like you get to know Wendy in increments that are really like, I mean, obviously the writing, but like Laura's Linny's performance just kind of like just meets, you know, information and sort of reveals new things with a, at a really nice pace. Um, and that, that really only gets better in the second season. Um, once I think, you know, they're, they're really figuring out who that character is. Um, yeah, it's a great performance. There are times when I want to say like, she's too good for this. <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, not, not, not that the material isn't good, but like, you know, it's Laura fucking Lindy, like, you know, um, uh, but you know, she seems to enjoy it and she's great on it. And I, yeah, I, I agree that the show would not be nearly what it is. And I probably would not have been really that compelled to even give it a shot. Uh, had she not been involved. There you go. Well, that is our love letter to Laura Linney and our, you know, sort of explanation why we are still watching Ozark. Uh, you can, like I said, check out the first two seasons, the only two seasons so far over on Netflix. You can decide whether or not you want to root for Jason Bateman in either the actor or directing category. Also, Daniel Sackheim, who's a great TV director, is also nominated for directing an episode. Um, the last thing I'll say uh, that I really like about Ozark is at the beginning of every episode, you know, this O pops up on the screen and then you get like four little drawings that are like teasing what's to come and i think it is like the most fun way to say like this week on ozark because you don't like you don't see anything and and you don't know really until the episode's over what exactly those drawings were nodding towards but it's always fun to like look at them be like okay i'll remember okay it's a boat on fire and there's a broken tv and i'll remember when those things happen in the show so and like ominously they'll be like why is there an axe oh god there's an axe like someone's gonna get an axe you know like (laughs) exactly uh yeah it's a cute little quirk yeah. All right. Well, Richard, we will we will be back next week to talk about another fall TV show. In the meantime, where can people find you? Well, uh, they can find me wandering the banks of Lake Ontario because I am in Toronto for the film festival. But also they can find me on VF.com where I will be reviewing things from the Toronto Film Festival. Uh, I will also be on Twitter at Rylaws. How about you? Um, I am on Twitter at Jerothis. You will find me on VanityFair.com. You'll find us talking about uh, fall film festival season, both of us over on Little Gold Men, and we will see you next week. I'm Claire Fallon. And I'm Emma Gray. We're culture writers, podcasters, and hosts of the show Love to See It. Every week, we give an unapologetically feminist dissection of reality dating shows, rom-coms, and other romance narratives. We unpack all the weird messages they send us about love, sex, and dating. And we dive into all the details with special guests like actors, authors, and cultural critics. You can find Love to See It wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop every Tuesday. It looks like they were poisoned. There's no reason Julian would do something like this. He's a 13-year-old boy. 
beyond anything you can understand. Hello and welcome to Still Watching The Sinner, brought to you by USA Network. I'm Emma Stefanski, the weekend editor for Vanity Fair. And I'm Matt Singer, the editor of ScreenCrush.com. We're here today to talk about parts four, five, and six of the second season of The Sinner, which airs on USA on Wednesdays at 10 p.m. Eastern. These three episodes have expanded the show's story in a huge way, but at the center of it remains Natalie Paul's detective character, Heather. Later in the episode, we'll talk to her about her role in this unfolding drama. But first, let's recap these episodes. A lot has happened. A lot has happened. Uh, we've had flashbacks. We've had dreams. We've had, like, Minotaur references. Labyrinths, Minotaurs. Yeah. I got, I got a, this weird Y tattooed on my wrist, <laughs> and I don't know why. Um, so let's, I guess, start with episode four, uh, which has a lot of the, it, it, like, introduces that labyrinth thing, uh, kind of. But we've got a lot of flashbacks to Ambrose as a child, that mysterious fire that Seems like his mom started, but probably not. Oh, and Julian asks Ambrose to be his lawyer in this episode because he thinks that Ambrose is the only person who knows who can, like, get him out of uh, this horrible, like, juvenile detention center where all the people are way bigger than he is. Um, And so Ambrose goes to Mosswood and visits Vera, and they visit the rock. And the rock is, like, it ends up sort of being just a rock that was there. Uh, on the land when they got the land and um yeah different religions have associated different meanings with it throughout history yeah uh and in this case they have this weird labyrinth that uh appears when you connect the lines and dots of this like wide tattoo that's on people's arms Mm -hmm. and so we flash back to marin yet again uh and we meet this new character named lionel jeffries who's this like cult leader who's the guy who's kind of come up with all this stuff about um the work and like finding your inner self and whatever which uh turns pretty creepy and uh we see he's got a lot of good ideas (laughs) a lot of good ideas what takes a turn (laughs) takes a little bit of a turn we see some video footage of a man like beating up someone he was working with yes the work there's a lot of talk about the work which is the therapy that they do which is it's more fight club than therapy really once you get down to it and it's all being engineered by this mysterious lionel jeffries character who we don't really see at first like we don't see much of him in this episode and you know conspiracy theorizing me was like "Ooh, who is this lionel mysterious lionel jeffries guy could could Heather's dad be Lionel Jeffries? Maybe? I thought it was Vera's pen name at first. I thought oh, she had like, written a bunch of these books. Right, because he's written books, including, I have them written down, Escaping the Labyrinth, uh-huh. The Return to Ritual, of course, and my favorite, Inhabiting Our Animal Bodies by Connecting to Nature. A classic. Yes, a bestseller on, <laughs> on the New York Times, for sure. Um, so we don't really see that much of him. Then he becomes more of a character right. in the next couple of episodes, which sort of, 
I guess, put the kibosh on my crazy my crazy theory. But we can talk more about theories later. I'm sorry to interrupt. But I like Lionel Jeffries. He's I mean, great. I don't like him, but he's a fascinating character. I feel like if I met him, I would probably like him. Like, he's one of those characters who's very, like, friendly and he seems to know what he's talking right. about. Right, well... That's kind of how cult leaders are. <laughs> they don't. Uh, they don't. They're not very good at their job if they can't convince you to join their weird, uh, you know, crusade. And so, while Ambrose is visiting Vera and like trying to get her to tell him what this work is, he gets lost in the woods, uh, and then he ends up at this cabin that ended up being Lionel Jeffrey's cabin. Where right. He sort of when while he was there, he's now gone under right. mysterious circumstances. He's not with us anymore. As ever, everything in this show is under mysterious circumstances. They could call this show under mysterious circumstances. But that's yeah, true. he's gone. He and was the beacon though. That was his other Oh, that's right. It was his name. that was his name. The and beacon. they kept saying the beacon, the, the beacon, beacon and the I beacon. thought it was like this weird spirit or something right. from the rock, but no, it was just a guy. Um and then I think there's another flashback to Julian. Well, they start doing the work Right. Vera and Ambrose and and then there's – He's really heated. Yes. <laughs> more than I was comfortable with. I did, I did say I did want more of the weird – That's true. You got your wish. Weird, kind of. sexy stuff from the first season. I got my – I got more than I bargained for. And, there, and then he blacks out and wakes up in the hotel where the murders – that started this whole thing took place and he doesn't know how he got there. And he's in the room. He's in the room. Where the murders, not just the hotel, but the exact room. And it's like, is it a message? Is it a, what is going on? And that's how that episode ends. I found it so weird. I think this happens, uh, this is cleared up in episode five, but when they, when he talks to the guy who like owns the motel, the guy was like, yeah, you asked for that room. I thought it was weird that he would just give him that room again. You want- <laughs> You want the murder room? Here you go. Like, oh, yeah. Let's let you maybe, revisit well, this trauma. Maybe it's discounted because of all the murder. Right. No one wants to stay in the murder room, so it was maybe it was the only room available. You have to disclose it, to your, like... Maybe it's cheaper. Who knows? Um, so, yeah, that when the next episode begins, we see, like, security camera footage of Ambrose is, like, just... Walking around like it's it's not like he was like drugged and dropped there. He's he seems fine. He seemed fine, which is even creepier. But he has no memory of what happened, right? Which yes is way creepier. So he immediately like confronts Vera and is like, "You did something. You did something to me." And she's like very weirded out by the fact that he has no memory of what happened. He's she's like, "I didn't give you anything. I, I this is this is strange." Which I don't know if that was legit or if she's just being creepy again. Eventually, the sort of investigation begins to involve more of this other previously much more tangential character glenn fisher that's right and like was he a cop he's one of the i guess you would say the glitterati of the town (laughs) he's a celebrity yes as it turns out he has this past with mosswood his family owned the land they owned the land his grandfather howard fisher and, and ambrose snooping around in his house without a warrant i believe right uh finds all this evidence you know finds a picture of the big rock finds finds out that howard fisher the grandfather owned the land since the 1930s gave it to uh, or sold it to lionel jeffries in the 90s and there's also in the, in flashbacks there's a lot of stuff involving like scapegoating Yes. An actual cow, an animal is ritualistically slaughtered. Almost a goat. Yeah. They, it's a cow instead of a goat. But it's close. It's a scape cow. And <laughs> uh, it's adorable, like, sweet-looking cow that it's they... so cute. The idea is, like, they're 
like almost like casting off it's scapegoating they're casting off their evil human sins and then killing the animal as the idea is that now they're free of them or right. some such as soon uh, as i saw that cow i knew oh, something terrible is gonna happen to this thing yes uh and we learned that marin is indeed julian's mother also lionel jeffries is julian's father yes uh which seems a little bit suspect right and then as we get into the sixth episode uh, well, first of all, we learned I, – I, 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 we got a glimpse of, of uh, Ambrose's driver's license, which included his date of birth, December 17th, 1953. That is Bill Pullman's actual birthday. Oh, that's funny. That's little, cool. little thing I noticed there. Um, yeah, but we got a lot – I mean that episode was very heavy on, on flashbacks to Mosswood and also like kind of deepening the character of Vera and mm-hmm. showing you – you know, when she's introduced, she seems like the evil cult leader. And she may still, she may still be evil. It's you know, it's, it's with this show, everyone kind of has a, a you know dark sides and secret secrets they're hiding. But we're seeing a more sort of complicated side, shall right. we say, as it relates to Julian and how she became his sort of adopted mother. She started out as like practically a recruiter for these people, and then ended up getting a little weirded out by how everything was escalating right and starting to doubt the scape cowing was something she had not signed up for no (laughs) and when things turn like actually violent you know she says something to along the lines of you know we our work used to be much more imaginative Mm -hmm. now we're like actually hurting each other and she's not really down with that and so uh we still don't really know as this episode ends what happened to lionel jeffries but there's a very strong suggestion near the end of this episode that uh that Gypsum weed tea. I guess maybe it's a family recipe because it sure seems like she might have given – she being Vera uh, might have given Lionel Jeffries. She definitely gave him tea. She did. Uh, <laughs> but as to what kind of tea it is, we don't entirely know yet. But the strong suggestion is that it might just be a little bit of that poison tea. That gypsum weed. Yeah. yeah, that stuff is uh, pretty nasty. Uh, one thing I did want to talk about was Julian's recurring nightmare that he keeps having of that weird hooded figure standing over him and like at one point reaching its hand like into his stomach, which was really weird. Um, and in episode four, they introduced this like old hag archetype. That's one of the like main archetypal figures that appears in dreams of normal people that normal people have. Sure. I've never you, dreamed about you don't the old have hag. old hag dreams. <laughs> Uh, I've never had closet door dreams either. I don't know. All of my dreams are like very narrative based. But uh, they like introduce this concept and basically they're like, Julian, this is what's going on. Like you're dreaming about this weird figure because it's not real. Yeah. It's a dream. It's not reality. It's fine. Like you just you got to grow up and get over it. (laughs) Uh, But then at the end of episode six, we learn that it is not not real. It is in fact real. Uh, This really happened to him. And not only that. The person, whoever it is, seems to have returned and has taken Julian away from the foster home Mm -hmm. through an open window. Right. uh, Which was very frightening. And I had to, um, I didn't sleep well after watching that. Did you then have an old hag dream at that point? I keep trying to like lucid dream (laughs) the old hag and it's not working. So what do you have a, do you have a, a theory about this? I think, I mean... The two people that it could be are either Lionel Jeffries, who is probably dead, right, uh, or Marin, because a lot of the some of the stuff that the show likes to do is like introduce a character who is at first very sinister and weird, but then 
you, you learn see the layers. that they're not. And right. then alternately, a character who seems friendly and then is revealed not to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think maybe this like scary figure could be Julian's mom returning to him finally. But know. then who was the corpse or, at the that they that they find in the car in the lake? I think it's somebody else. Oh, you think that's a fake out? It's a red herring. It wouldn't be the most shocking thing that's happened on this show. My 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 thinking was that previously and I forgive me for not watching and paying enough attention to tell you this right off the top of my head but was thinking that it was a dream Mm. and whoever he told it to one of the people he told that to used the dream to uh bring this dream character to life as a means of connecting with connecting with him (laughs) sneaking into his his room and absconding with him that's my theory, is that it was a dream previously, because to the best of my knowledge, you can't, like, Temple of Doom Reach your into, fingers right. into a person's stomach and not leave marks, Not you know what I mean? So that's what I was sort of wondering. Do you think that of the of the hooded figures that we have seen, has one been real and not a dream? Oh, I think the most recent one is real. Oh, yeah. But that... that it's someone he told because he's told people about this. He has, and you know, Mosswood word spreads fast over there, so it could be multiple people. It's a small place, right? I mean, I sort of like your your idea. Your 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 theory is intriguing, and I want to subscribe to the newsletter. But <laughs> but I wonder if perhaps both of our theories could be correct because the, the earlier scenes also felt more dreamlike. The time that we saw it previously when the fingers went into the stomach, that felt like a dream. And you see him like sitting up and in bed and you see him waking up. waking up. And this one felt so – it felt like it was shot differently mm-hmm. to convey that it was real and it wasn't a dream. So that's why – that's what sort of made me key into it. Now, I didn't – this is where we can bring in my – theory from the previous our previous you podcast really want to talk about this well sure <laughs> i because but, but i want but, to hear i mean it could be expansion i mean theoretically it could be heather's dad because why not i it mean could it could be it could be all i want to say about that theory which we discussed more at length in the, our previous podcast has not been disproven in any way <laughs> that he could be evil part of the cult behind everything and i feel like everything we've seen in this a, a trio of episodes to me is just convincing me more and more. He's always trying to get Heather to put put away those maps. Yeah, stop dealing with the case. You need to get your mind off of it. This I want to eat ice cream. I'm going back to my weeds. You know all of these things. Are, like weird salads that he like pours ranch pours dressing, ranch dressing even though she's told him not to. Absolutely. So to me, it's like it's just it's just clue after clue, and I think. They're playing it perfectly where they're not really – they're not giving away their hand. There's never like a, a shot where he's like looking. Right. And he's, and he's playing it perfectly. But I, I don't think there has been a single thing that has – that you could point to to say it is not true. It's not possible because of this. Mm-hmm. That's true. And, uh, you know, like I was saying I think before, like I was – when they first started introducing this mysterious Lionel Jeffries who went missing, I was like, ah! <laughs> It's the dad. He's he he just like he created a new identity to escape the. Co- but now I don't think that's true because we've seen so much of Lionel Jeffries. Maybe he got like face surgery. I thought about that with that cult. That's money. how crazy I am as I was thinking about that. But now <laughs> I'm not I'm not I'm not buying that. But I do think he is involved somehow in whether it was the maybe the death of the mom mm. and the cult helped him. Mosswood helped him cover it up. 
Oh, that would be creepy. That uh, would be really messed up. Because it would be very messed Heather's up. father. Yes. <gasps> but we have seen that this, that Mosswood, you know, that there's a lot of violence and that all there's all these sort of people from the community use the cult as a means to sort of get out their anger and all these things. So it, That's he, right. it, you know, it, it might not have even been, in, you know, an intentional murder. It could have been an accident, you know, perhaps in the process of doing the work. That's what I th- think it that's is what you think that's like the thought that popped into my head while i was watching episode six was like mm-hmm. oh i bet she didn't no one like killed her because there's no like reason for them to to kill her except right. like you know if you wanted to steal her baby which i don't think even she would do mm-hmm. um but yeah i totally think that she died as an accident and they covered it up so we can move on to other issues but i wanted to address because i really put myself out there i'm starting this. to believe you good there's no reason not to no at this point exactly we also learned that Ambrose was the one who started the kitchen fire, not his mother. And he not, started it not to, like, shocking to me. Get his get her attention. Right. Basically, just like set some curtains on fire. I mean, I, I don't know about you, but I didn't find that a particularly shocking twist. It felt like that was sort of where yeah. we were going, especially when they're talking about, you know, and then we're starting to get into the ideas about like repressed memories. And when Vera's saying, you're, you know, the ego doesn't want you to you know bring these things up it just that's it seemed like that was the direction everything was going he definitely had like guilt associated with those memories which which meant like he was partially responsible for it even though like you you know as a child you think that you're responsible for everything but uh in that case it was true Mm -hmm. he did it um we talked a little bit about in the previous episode i know for sure we did in the first one i'm not sure about the second one but the the movie references that are sort of scattered throughout. That's and I right. picked up a few more. We already talked about the Fisher King, which, <laughs> yeah, I guess it could be about Huge a legend. <laughs> but obviously I thought about the movie. Um, but you the mentioned one, M, I think, in the episode in, one. In episode one, yeah. yeah. And in this one or in this group of episodes, I got a, got a real strong Apocalypse Now vibe from the slaughtering of the cow. Mm. It's mm. very similar stuff in Apocalypse Now, which is also cow. has sort of this very uh, charismatic leader in this sort of commune environment. And then all the stuff with dredging the car up from the lake is the last shot of Psycho. And there were previous Psycho allusions, too, with the motel and the right. murder and the right. shower. And so there's there's almost like a remix of Psycho going on here. All the issues with mothers, mother guilt. Um, you know, the, the corpses, the, uh, the bones, the desiccated bones is very much like the, uh, m- you know, poor old mother from, uh, from Psycho. Spoiler alert for a 65 year old movie, right. but, but, uh, there you have it. So yeah, those were, those were the two big ones that I spotted in, in, in these episodes. What do you think about all this stuff with like Julian? Julian is the special boy. He's this like, people keep saying like Vera said, you know, you have no idea like what he is. You have no idea. And then um, Lionel Jeffries at one point is like, he will bind us together or something. I think like mainly he was talking about how a child of the commune would be a nice thing for everyone. But I thought mainly he wanted to escape cow, (laughs) escape human. He was going to, you know, maybe that's how it escalated. Like it went too far. That was what I that's what I thought is that (gasps) that he was going to escape baby. And that uh, was the that was the final straw for. For Vera, that was my my thinking. I mean, I will say, I would I would like to see in the last two episodes coming up. I'd like to see more of Julian because he is such an interesting character. He's great, and he, I think, he almost has to remain a mystery because, you know, he is the center of the mystery of like why did he mm-hmm. presumably 
uh, kill these two people and what does it have to do with this whole swirling conspiracy around him so you, we can't know that much until we sort of answer all those questions but I feel like he is the character that I want to see more of because of those reasons that you're mentioning like how is he special and how did being raised in this environment make him this way and you know we, we get to see him in the prison a little bit but I felt like you know I want to see more I thought of all the characters and the potential for more interesting stuff in the final couple of episodes. I feel like he's top of the list. I want to see more of him. And, you know, I guess when we find out who took him out of that, uh, you know, right. boy's home, that'll probably that'll probably be a good place to <laughs> throw some of that in. But I'm, de- I'm definitely looking forward to seeing more of him. On the line, we have Natalie Paul, who plays Heather Novak in this season of The Sinner. Uh, how are you? How's- I'm great. I'm great. I'm in New York. Um, it feels good to have wrapped the show. Um, I can't kind of. I I still can't quite believe it because it was like okay. I, it feels like we just you know it just started. We have two more episodes to go in this season. Um, is there two more episodes? Okay, yeah, yeah. So I, yeah, seven and eight. Um, is there? I guess no spoilers, but is there anything coming up that you're like? really excited for people to see yeah definitely <laughs> um i can't talk about it <laughs> uh you know i think mm, you know honestly i think you just i don't know i can't really i can't really say much right, i think right. i can just say that yeah it, it's gonna be good it's gonna be really <laughs> that's all we need to good. hear um do you have a favorite scene from like the six episodes that we've seen, like, did you, well, while you were watching it, were you like, oh, yeah, this was really, really cool to shoot? Um, I loved shooting the breakup scene with Marin mm. at the gate. Um, that, was so that was really, um, it was just nice. You know, I loved, I love actually loved shooting all the Marin scenes, um, all the flashback scenes, because, Present day Heather, I don't know. I'd be friend, if I'd be friends with, to be honest with you. But <laughs> flashback Heather, she had at least she she knew how to have a little fun, you know. So um, I really enjoyed like just um, not being in the uniform <laughs> and and also, and just relating and and having you know being able to talk to you know act with Hannah and have these authentic moments of friendship with female friendship and. Um, and just revisiting that time of life. But definitely the breakup for both of us, I think, um, as actors, it was really challenging and, and good to, to do. And I just really had a good time that day, I remember. <laughs> I know with us, when we're sitting here talking about it, we love to, like, break down, you know, some of the themes you've been talking about, but we also like, you know, trying to figure out, oh, is this person going to be in on it? Is this person secretly part of the call? Or when you're not shooting, when you're on set, are you guys playing those same games, trying to like figure it out before before you get that next script? Uh, yeah, definitely. We were <laughs> sort of a little bit. I think, I think part of us were like, how is this all going to come together? Because I mean, honest, I mean, you know, just everybody, like the whole, the sort of because it is, it feels, even though it's definitely, you know, Bill's show and it's, you know, it, we're going to see Detective Ambrose again in the, in the next seasons and stuff, it still felt like such a collaborative environment. And so 
we were just all very much curious about how this all was going. Like, what, how is this going to relate? You know, like, when are we going to have a scene together? When are you and I going to have a scene together? You know, mm-hmm. um, and what's going to happen in that scene? You know, so, um, and I, and I love that about the show, by the way, it's that, that it's very taught, like in a sense of like, you know, yes, we see the town and there's all kinds of characters that we meet, but um, before I was on the deuce and that was such a big cast. It was a huge cast. And we, I definitely ended up seeing how it was all connected in the end. But during, you know, with, with the center, it felt a bit more like a play as, as close to a play that it can feel like because of the fact that it was sort of so centralized and just the connections are, are being made in every episode. So that was really cool. Did anyone have like a fan theory that you guys were like, oh my God, this is totally true. And then it ended up not being a what fan, happened? a fan. Th- oh, you mean like a theory on the show? Yeah. 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 Oh, you mean oh, the moment when like Heather becomes a part of Mosswood and, you know, <laughs> finds Moran and they create a new Mosswood <laughs> campus like that one. That sounds great. Um, <laughs> they take Mosswood International. Um, <laughs> No, I, 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 that, that was part, I mean, we were joking so much that I can't, I honestly can't remember because, you know, we would just find all kinds of reasons to come up with stuff, but, um, there's one. (laughs) (laughs) I, now I really want that to happen. I mean, I'm sure it won't happen, but that would be so cool. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, you've been great. Thank you for for calling in. Uh, And that's it for this week's episode of Still Watching The Sinner. Join us again next Sunday, September 16th, after Still Watching. Joanna and Richard will be discussing the Amazon series Jack Ryan, and we'll be discussing episode 7 of The Sinner. This episode was edited and produced by Brandon Harrison. Brandon Harrison.